Hello, and welcome to the Latin American History Podcast, episode 86, Latin America's Democratic Crusade, an interview with Alan Wells. Today, we're taking a break from our usual episodes for a special interview with Alan Wells about his book, Latin America's Democratic Crusade. Alan is a recently retired Professor Emeritus of History at Bowdoin College and the driving force behind the creation of the Latin American Studies program there. Among other things, he has written and edited books and articles on the history of the trade in commodities, with a particular focus on the Yucatan, and on World War II Jewish refugees in the Dominican Republic. His latest book, the one we will talk about today, takes a broader look at Latin America and the political currents which have shaped its recent history. We are a long way off reaching the 20th century on this podcast. However, seeing as a lot of you listening will have actually lived in part of it, I would guess it's safe to say that most of you will be familiar with the basic outline of its history. As far as most people are concerned, the one thing which defines the second half of the 20th century more than anything else is the Cold War. In their titanic ideological struggle, the great powers fought proxy wars all over the world, and Latin America is usually thought of as a particularly fervent battleground. You have the Cuban Revolution, Che Guevara, the FARC in Colombia, and the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. These are some of the forces and figures on the left-hand side of this conflict. On the right, you have Operation Condor, paramilitary forces, and a myriad of right-wing hunters across the region. That Latin America did become a Cold War hotspot is certainly true. However, in Latin America's democratic crusade, Allen examines the period and he makes a compelling argument that by viewing things solely through this lens, we are misinterpreting what was really going on on the ground at the time. In doing so, we make assumptions based on the Western preoccupation about communism rather than listening to what the people in Latin America actually thought and did. In the end, no matter whether a country veered sharply to the left or to the right, they usually ended up outside of the democratic world, even if this is what Washington claimed to be protecting when it supported numerous dictators. Allen argues that for many Latin Americans, much of the 20th century was actually defined by another struggle. Not communism against capitalism, although these were important, but democracy versus dictatorship in whichever form that came. So thank you for coming on, Alan. I really appreciate you taking the time to do it. So I thought it'd be best to start off with a bit of context to the, the book and the central thesis. So in the second half of the 1940s, Western countries and the Soviet Union were focused on the fallout from World War II. And they were coming to terms with the idea that a new type of global conflict was perhaps emerging, the Cold War. Obviously, there was awareness of this in Latin America, but its involvement in World War II was limited, and it had its own recent history and set of issues that it was focused on. So what was going on politically in Latin America at the time and over the preceding decades, and what were the main debates which politically active people were focused on? Yeah, that's a very good question, Max. Um, I think... Uh... If we just take the 1940s uh, and during uh, the first half of the 1940s, Latin America was very much allied with the United States during World War II. Um, FDR had created a kind of loose coalition of countries. It was called Fortress America. 
And uh, virtually every country in Latin America supported the Allied cause uh, against the Nazis. Argentina and Chile, to a lesser extent, were harder to convince, but they eventually, by the end of the war, came around. Um, so Latin Americans fought in World War II. Um, they fought on the side of the Allies uh, in small numbers, um, but they uh, allowed their ports to be used by the Allies uh, to protect the shipping lanes in the Panama Canal. So they very much were uh, supporters of the Allied cause. Um, and at the same time, there was a pendulum shift in Latin America towards democracy, beginning in, the 19, in 1944. And nine countries changed from uh, dictatorships or strongman rule Caudillo rule to to democracies during uh, after uh, at the end of World War II and the beginning of uh, the post-war period. So um, a number of these democracies were reform minded. Um, they had agendas that on the one hand were uh, opposed to right wing military dictatorships. And on the other hand, they were opposed to communism and uh, their agenda political, economic, and social, was very comparable to the New Deal in the United States during that time. And um, governments like Venezuela and Guatemala, for example, those democratic governments, that's the first time in the history of those countries that they had ever had democracies. So it was a quite, quite a watershed moment in Latin America. And there was this feeling among these moderates that this was their time. You know, they had been fighting since the early 1920s against dictatorships, and now they were coming to power in their countries. Uh, so there was a lot of optimism there. And interestingly enough, they got some support from the United States because there was a, a change in policy for a brief time of 20 months uh, from 1945 to 1947. Uh which supported democratic movements in Latin America, as opposed to the traditional support for dictatorships by the United States government. Um, and the assistant secretary for Latin American affairs was a name, uh, a man by the name of Sproul Braden. Uh, and he promoted democracy. For example, in Argentina, he was opposed to Perón, right? Felt that he was a, you know, a populist dictator, uh, authoritarian. And, you know, was giving safe haven to the Nazis during that time. He was opposed to uh, uh, Trujillo uh, in, uh, the Dominican, in the Dominican Republic and the Samosas in Nicaragua. And you had this uh, American diplomat going around Latin America saying, no, no, we're the, we're the defender of freedom um, as a result of World War II. And we want to promote democracy all over Latin America. And, you know, this idea that there ought to be a moral character to Latin American policy was uh, quite remarkable during that period. And there was a lot of pushback, not only from dictators in Latin America, but within the U.S. Uh, US establishment, you know, which had traditionally supported dictatorships. There was a feeling that these kind of this kind of morality shouldn't have any place in U.S. foreign policy, you know, that it should be a matter of real politique, you know. So so there was this sense that uh, it was a debate going on within the U.S. government about whether or not Braden's policy was the right one to go. 
Um, and then, of course, the Cold War began to emerge by the late 1940s. And Braden was forced out, and the United States went back to its traditional foreign policy. So that's kind of the landscape, the political landscape, to answer your question in a long way, I apologize, uh, when the 1940s is happening. And one more thing I'll comment about this is that it was during this period, the 40s and the 50s, where Latin American governments, they weren't concerned about communist penetration in the hemisphere, not the way the United States government was. They were concerned about, you know, defeating dictatorships and making sure they didn't come back, excising them from the hemisphere. So uh, that was their number one concern during this time. And as I argue in the book, um, the Cold War really came late to Latin America. It didn't come until 1959 uh, as a result of the Cuban Revolution. That's when communism becomes a real concern. Up to that point, communist parties in Latin America are what they used to call couch parties. Why couch parties? Because all the members of the party would be, you could put on one couch. You know, of course, that's, you know, an overstatement, but many Latin American leftist parties were weak, small and fractious. They were constantly going at each other's throats and they often cut deals and uh, were accommodated by dictatorships. So many Latin Americans did not look kindly on communist parties. For precisely that reason, not because they were going to bring about a socialist utopia. It was that they had sided with ruthless dictators who had uh, repressed their countries because the struggle between democracy and dictatorship, as I argue, was foremost in their minds. That's fascinating. So you mentioned that this conflict between dictatorship and democracy had its roots in the in the 1920s. And in the book, you talk about how it was the universities in Latin America that became place of protests and almost the crucible for these anti-dictatorship movements. So what, what was going on in the universities at the time and why did they take such an important role? Yeah, it's, that's another thing I learned while doing the research for this, um, is that, you know, during the late 19-teens, immediately after World War One and the 1920s and 30s, there was a university reform movement throughout Latin America, a transnational movement of students who were committed to modernizing and reforming the university, you know, changing the curriculum, updating it, uh, getting rid of political hacks who had been given appointments as professors, you know, participating in shared governance of the universities and bringing about democracy in their own countries. And what you have is this flowering, if you will, of university reform movements in virtually every country in Latin America. And that's where a lot of my reformist politicians, my uh, in the 50s and the 60s who take power, that's where they cut their teeth, struggling against strongman rule in their countries in the 1920s and 1930s. So um, and they paid for it. You know, they were repressed. They were imprisoned. They were tortured. Many of them were exiled, you know, but they gained a tremendous amount of credibility and legitimacy in the eyes of many Latin Americans because they were standing up to dictatorship. 
And so they became, I argue, a kind of moral compass for these societies. Because for, for many people um, who wanted an end to dictatorship, these were the ones on the, the students were the ones on the front lines, you know, arguing for this. Um, so that university reform movement was uh, pretty much the beginning of the struggle against dictatorships in the 1920s and 1930s. Another thing you highlighted in the book was a thing called the International of the Sword. Now, many people who know a bit about recent Latin American history are aware of Operation Condor, which was an alliance of dictators who worked together with US involvement to stifle left-wing opposition. Operation Condor fits quite nicely into the Cold War narrative, left versus right. But the International of the Sword, it's, uh, it doesn't fit so neatly. So what was it and why is it so important for understanding what was happening at the time? Yeah, I think this is really interesting, Max. We know, of course, that there was this transnational movement and struggle for democracy. And there were many reformers in these countries who were struggling for it. But there was also a, a loose coalition of dictatorships that supported each other and did all they could to undermine democratic rule, not just in their own countries, but in neighboring countries and in the countries of other dictators. So we have this alliance, a loose alliance of dictators. It actually begins in the 20s and 30s, where they begin to share intelligence where they're looking out for the dissidents of dictatorships of other countries, right? Uh, where they're harassing Democrats uh, and repressing them, whether or not they're, you know, even uh, members of their own society or expats who have wound up in their countries. So you have this coalition beginning in the 1920s. It really doesn't take shape until after World War II. And as uh, the president of Venezuela, Romulo Betancourt, called it, uh, it was the international of the sword, la internacional de la espada. Uh, and they didn't always agree. And there were falling outs among these dictators who were very prideful um, and uh, uh, often didn't take advice from others. Um, and But uh, it was held together um, and the eminence Greece, as I point out in the book, was Juan Perón in Argentina. He began sending uh, diplomats from Argentina to other dictatorships uh, around the hemisphere uh, and providing them with support, ideological, uh, but also economic. Uh, they sent, he sent labor attaches uh, to work with the labor movements in their country to make them beholden to uh, his labor confederation, uh, and uh, and he he also showed a new way to these dictators to operate um, that a right wing populist dictator could take power through the ballot box and then maintain power, right? Uh, to use and abuse democratic institutions for their own means. Perón was a master at doing that, and he was emulated by many of the other dictatorships. And the La, La Internacional also got help from Francisco Franco in Spain, who uh, ideologically was uh, very sympathetic to what these dictators were going through. 
And he provided all kinds of assistance, not economic because Spain was a basket case after World War II, but ideological and cultural. And there was a real meeting of the minds between Franco and these dictatorships. And he would host these sumptuous state visits where Trujillo or Somoza or Batista would go to Madrid, right? And be wined and dined and you know shown all the highlights um, and meet uh, prominent elites in the Franco regime. So between Perón and Franco and others, there was a lot of support for this coalition of dictators during this time. So just as Democrats were organizing and collaborating together, so too were dictatorships. Yeah, that, that's something I hadn't really appreciated before reading reading the book, that the links with Spain, and it makes sense because Franco was a similar kind of dictator at a similar time. And I found it fascinating that on the other side, you had Republican soldiers who had fought against Franco, um, not for communism or anarchism or anything like that, who had ended up being exiled and wanted to carry the their struggle on in in Latin America. It's um yeah, I found that particularly interesting. You know, I I had always uh, found the Spanish Civil War fascinating. You know, and what I realized in working on this book is that the Spanish Civil War did not end in 1939. That in many ways these exiles on both sides, um, many of them repatriated to Latin America. Um, they spoke the language, culture was similar. You know, many of their relatives were there already. Um, and so they came to Latin America and they continued fighting for what they believed in on both sides of the conflict in Latin America. So you had Spanish Republicans who fought on the side of the Democrats who wanted to bring an end to dictatorship in Latin America during this period. And then you had many right wing uh, expatriates who came to Latin America who fought with on the side of the dictatorships. So in many ways, the Spanish Civil War has a lease on life, a second lease on life in Latin America after World War II. So there are many characters you cover in the book, but you devote a whole chapter to Tony Guterres. Who was he and why was he so important for the story you tell? Yeah, another person I didn't know a whole lot about when I started this project that, you know, a rabbit hole that I went down. So I began investigating the student movements in all of these countries, as I mentioned, in the 1920s and 30s. And by far, the most radical student movement of all was in Cuba. Um, students there were, were dedicated to the overthrow of a dictator. Well, that wasn't unusual. That was happening all over. The dictator in Cuba was Gerardo Machado, who ruled from 1924 until he was eventually ousted in 1933. Cuban students wanted to transform not not only in dictatorship, but also transform the neo-colonial relationship which had existed between the United States and Cuba. And that gave, um, uh, provided a, a very radical, um, uh, or promoted a very radical movement in Latin America. The Spanish-American War, successive military occupations, the Platt Amendment, and the ceding of Guantanamo to the US military all to these students represented a betrayal of the principles that heroic guerrilla fighters during Cuba's wars of independence from 1868 to 1898 um, uh, 
had wanted when they wanted to establish a truly independent and sovereign country in Cuba. And instead, they got a neo-colonial colonial relationship where, in many ways, economically, culturally, politically, Cuba became an appendage of the United States during this period. Um, Cuban uh, student activists um, paid dearly for opposing the dictatorship of Machado. Uh, and when he was finally ousted in 1933, a reformist government took over that ruled for a thousand days. Um, it was led by a university professor by the name of Ramon Grau San Martin. And he incorporated student activists into his administration who had fought for the struggle to overthrow a dictatorship for the better part of a decade. And no one was more important to Grau San Martin than this young Cuban from the Western part of the island, Pinar del Rio. He was a pharmaceutical student. Uh, he had participated in the struggle against Machado. Uh, he had gained a strong following in the Eastern part of the country. He'd moved to the East. Um, and in fact, what he did to uh, become a, a rebel leader in the struggle against Machado will be carefully emulated by Fidel Castro 20 years later. And Guterres uh, comes to Havana after the Machado is thrown out and is given three cabinet posts in Grau San Martin's provisional government. And he was only 27 years old. And he was this really fascinating figure. He used to wear white suits, you know, and he was part Irish. So he had red hair, a very un-Cuban characteristic. Cubans are very lively and very talkative uh, and energetic. And he barely said a word, you know, he was very kind of laconic. So he was this like mysterious figure who had tremendous influence in this provisional government, this reform-minded provisional government. And Tony, Antonio Guterres, it was nicknamed Tony, he was uh, opposed to right-wing military, military dictatorships, but he was also opposed to communism, right? He did not want to swap American influence for Soviet influence in Cuba. That wasn't what he wanted. He wanted a true social revolution a radical social revolution. And during those a thousand days that this government was in power until it was overthrown by a young uh, sergeant by the name of uh, Fulgencio Batista, during those a thousand days, Guterres passed some landmark le legislation that transformed, if it had been thoroughly implemented, would transform uh, the land and labor relations on the island and would have brought about a truly sovereign uh, in independent Cuba and would have jettisoned the Platt Amendment, right, uh, which had uh, given the U.S. Uh, sort of sovereignty over Cuba during that time. So as a result of this, Guterres made a lot of enemies, enemies across the political spectrum. Right-wingers were terrified of the kind of revolution he was talking about. Um, so conservative elites were opposed to him. Leftists were opposed to him because he did not believe in imposing 
a Soviet-styled dictatorship of the proletariat uh, on the island. And uh, finally, in 1935, uh, he was assassinated by Batista's soldiers uh, in Matanzas on the island. And in many ways, like Jose Marti before him, he became an icon of revolution. And as I mentioned, Castro and other rebels of the 26th of July movement would see uh, Guterres as a uh, martyr for the cause of revolution during that time. In fact, they named a battalion in this Sierra Maestra after Guterres. So I found him to be an endlessly fascinating figure. How does a 27-year-old former student become a cabinet officer and hold three posts and pass landmark legislation uh, and manage to terrify everybody on all sides of the political spectrum. He just seemed like such a Latin American character, you know, that uh, it's no wonder people love Latin American history. Anyway, I, I digress, but I found him really interesting. A few days ago, I arrived back in Bogota, Colombia. I'm delighted to be back in Latin America surrounded by all the sights and sounds I love. It's been a while since I was here, though, and my Spanish has become a little rusty. Have you ever learned a language for a trip abroad, to connect with family and friends, or simply just for the fun of it? You might know what I mean. To help get me back up to scratch, I've been using Rosetta Stone. It's been perfect for this, allowing me to pick up at the level that I'm at, rather than starting from the beginning. And as it's available on both desktop and as an app on my phone, and lessons can be downloaded for use when not connected to the internet, I've been able to make use of time spent on planes and buses. I've already noticed a difference as I engage in conversations with locals and navigate everyday interactions in shops, restaurants and museums. Its true accent speech recognition feature has helped me to perfect my pronunciation and encourage me to think in Spanish, as well as just attempting to speak it. Over 30 years, Rosetta Stone has perfected its language learning method to create a program which is immersive, intuitive, and designed to promote long-term retention. It's also great value, with its current half-price membership giving you access to 25 languages for life. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a limited time, Latin American History Podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today. So we've looked at what was happening on the Latin American side of things, but of course the other big player in the story is the United States. The general trend when it comes to the policy of the USA was to support the dictators in their efforts against communism in the Western Hemisphere. But of course, we're talking about individuals with differing views across, across a um, sustained amount of time. So was it a simplification to say that this was all that was going on in Washington? How much debate was there in the USA about whether this was the right course of action? I, I think that's a, a really excellent question, Max, because U.S. foreign policy has never been monolithic. There are support for all kinds of views uh, within the government, within the security establishment especially. And there was a, quite a lot of debate 
outside of DC as well, which uh, academics, labor leaders, journalists, all had their own ideas about US policy during this time. So uh, the US government is subject to all those influences and pressure uh, from outside uh, the government. Um, but um, even within the government, there was debate. And sometimes this has been presented in the literature as uh, the Defense Department, called the War Department prior to 1947, uh, and the burgeoning security establishment were the kind of hawks around this policy who wanted to support dictatorships because they felt that democratic governments were too weak to stand up to Soviet penetration during the uh, Cold War. And that the the State Department, where, where the doves who were more willing to give the benefit of doubt and to support fledgling democratic governments, as had developed after World War II, to uh, promote democracy in Latin America. But even that's a simplification, because within the State Department, there were hawks and doves who were arguing for both sides, for their own, uh, what they thought, what they believed in. So there was a lot of debate, as you point out, uh, within the U.S. establishment about what the correct policy was. So even as we were mentioning before, right after World War II, for a brief moment, the doves within the State Department had the upper hand when Braden becomes the assistant secretary and we have this pro-democracy policy. But after a certain point, those 20 months, with the arrival of the Cold War, the beginnings of the Cold War in Europe and elsewhere, uh, the hawks gain ascendancy within the US establishment. So there is this debate going on at various times. I mean, another moment where you could argue the doves have the upper hand, it's, it's not very often, is Jimmy Carter's human rights policy uh, in the uh, uh, late 1970s. Uh, but of course, that was short-lived as well. And the realists within the State Department gained the upper hand pretty quickly. And so do you think that the the success of the Hawks and the general trend of supporting dictatorships may have pushed some of these anti-dictator activists in Latin America further to the left and into the hands of the Soviet Union? Yeah, it's a tough one to say or to generalize about, but I'll say a few things about that. In many ways, reformers were between a rock and a hard place. If they were too radical, they they could bring about a backlash from the right and the fear of a coup uh, and a takeover, and then they would be out of power. If they were too conservative, right, and they didn't bring about meaningful change and didn't live up to their promises of, of uh, democratic and social and economic reform, they'd be attacked by the left for being vendepatrias, for being sellouts, you know? And, and you know, we can see that in our own politics today, right? You know, where moderates are being attacked from the right and the left. And the same thing was going on in Latin America. And the other thing that I would say is, is that many of these reform pol uh, reformist pol uh, parties, political parties, they were big tent uh, parties. They had members of the middle class, uh, they had professionals, uh, they had uh, uh, the union rank and file, they had peasant confederations in them, 
So there were all kinds of voices within these multi-class uh, reformist political parties. There was always a radical wing within that party. And there was always a more traditional or conservative wing within those parties. So yes, you did, as you point out, have moments when progressives within a political party like ABE, Acción Democrática in Venezuela, or um, the PLN in Costa Rica, the Partido Liberación Nacional, you know, where you had reformists who wanted to leave to break away and form a rump faction and create their own political party. And this is what happens after the Cuban Revolution, where progressive wings of these reform-minded parties will break away from these big tent uh, parties and they'll join the the revolution in their own countries. They'll join a, a rural guerrilla insurgency and fight against these democratic governments. That's how the you know these guerrilla insurgencies after the Cuban Revolution pop up all over Latin America, uh, and many of them are fueled by dissident members of the reform-minded parties that I'm studying in this book. So you've just touched on it a bit there, but I guess the Cuban Revolution was was the major event. A dictator had successfully been overthrown, but it was the socialists rather than the reformists who managed to manage to succeed in that. What impact did this have outside of Cuba? How did the reformists and the socialists elsewhere and the dictators react? It is really a watershed moment for the entire hemisphere, not just for Cuba, of course. I'm not sure we can say that it was the socialists who overthrew Batista. In recent scholarship on the Cuban Revolution has shown that it was the urban underground, not those guerrillas in the Sierra Maestra, that did the heavy lifting to bring about the overthrow of the Cuban Revolution. Of course, the guerrilla fighter has been mythologized by the revolution for their own purposes, right, since 1959. You know, Che's book you know, became a Bible throughout Latin America, so it helped propagate that myth. But it always gave more power and influence to the guerrilla fighters than it did to the urban underground, who, of the 4,000 people who were killed by Batista during the insurrection, three or 4,000 is what we estimate, right? The lion's share were in the urban underground. So they took the, the pounding of uh, the reactionary forces of Batista during this time. And many of those in the underground were middle class, they were uh, professionals, they were urban workers, they were definitely not socialists or communists. And even Fidel, when he's talking about what Cuba's going to look like after 1959, he's not talking about communism, right? He's talking about democracy in Cuba. He sees himself as the fulfillment of Tony Guterres uh, in Cuba and Marti, right? He wraps himself in those heroic figures. And he, early on, he puts his money with his, where his mouth is. He sends out Cubans and he helps others in other countries to overthrow Trujillo. He tries to overthrow Trujillo in 59. He tries to overthrow the Samosas. In 59, he's he's going after dictators. Duvalier in Haiti is another one he tries to overthrow. 
Um, so as far as my the reformers that I study, like Betancourt and Figueres and others, they see Fidel as one of them, as a reform-minded guy who's going to bring about an end to dictatorship. He's already done it in Cuba with the ouster of Batista, right? And of course, where does Batista go after he's exiled? He goes to the home of another member of La Internacional de la Espada, right? The uh, coalition of dictatorships. He goes to uh, Ciudad Trujillo. He goes to the Dominican Republic. So that struggle is seems to be still going on. As long as there are dictatorships and democracies pitted against each other. So initially, Fidel seems like a reformer. And in fact, reformers like Betancourt and Figueres had sent arms and money to the Sierra during the insurrection to help Fidel because they believed he was one of them. And of course, to the surprise of many Cubans, as well as many Latin Americans, within a period of six months to a year, he begins totally transforming Cuba into uh, a communist society uh, and one that's allied with the Soviet Union. And that comes as a shock to the U.S. government, to Latin American reformers, and to the Cuban people, many of whom decide to vote with their feet and leave the island during the early years of the revolution. Uh, but as you know, it totally transforms the rest of Latin America. What are these reformers going to do now? Now they have to make a choice. Whereas before, they might have been on the fence. They would say, a pox on both of your houses, both the right and the left. Now they don't have that option. They're forced to be on one side of the fight or the other. And they chose to be on the side of the United States during the Cold War. The Latin American Cold War, as, I, as I'm arguing, is belated. And once they make that choice, they're going to alienate somebody. They're going to alienate many young, a new generation of students who put Fidel up on a pedestal for bringing about a radical revolution. And they want to do the same in their own countries. And they, of course, see the reformers as sellouts, as mealy-mouthed, moderate politicians who are never going to get anything done, right? As bourgeois lapdogs of imperialism, as they called them at the time. And they do what an earlier generation of students did, what my reformers did, and they start fighting to bring about a socialist society in their own countries. So really, the Cuban Revolution transforms the entire region. And my reformers, you know, they recognize that Fidel is akin to a celebrity or a rock star throughout Latin America. When he comes to Venezuela, to Caracas, two weeks after he's taken power in Havana, 300,000 people show up in the Palacio de El Silencio in downtown Caracas to cheer his every word. And you know, he has many words. He spoke for two hours that night, which was a short speech for Fidel. Uh, he was supposedly had uh, the grip, you know, he had a he had a bad cold, a respiratory cold. Uh, so he only spoke for two hours that night, but he was, he was treated like a rock star. So reform-minded politicians in Latin America had to tread carefully 
If they attacked Fidel too much early on, it would invite the wrath of all those who saw Fidel as the hope for the future at that particular moment. You know, and then the Bay of Pigs happens, right? And the Bay of Pigs is incredibly popular throughout Latin America. Why? Because Fidel has stood up to the big bad, you know, North Americans and come out victorious, right? So reformers didn't want to attack Fidel at that point, even though they realized he was going uh, to the left and bringing about a kind of leftist revolution that they abhorred and they did not want to see in Latin America. So these uh, these reformers were put in a vice, I argue. They're, they're caught by the web of the Cold War. They're ensnared in that Cold War web. Um, I had another question. It's outside the scope of the book, and it might be too broad to, to really answer. But now that the, um, the Cold War's finished, most of Latin America is broadly democratic and has been for quite a while with some exceptions and some hiccups in some countries. I was just wondering if you saw any echoes of this this battle today in any way. Yeah, I, I think you're seeing it. It's not exactly the same, as you point out. Many countries in Latin America have gone democratic, but they're ostensibly democratic. Not, on, not infrequently, we see populist governments take over, like Bolsonaro's in Brazil most recently, uh, the Peronists governments in Argentina would be example of those populist governments. And those governments are, you know, following in the footsteps of earlier populist governments in the sense that they're, um, they're not quite democratic parties. You know, they're using and abusing democracy for their own political purposes. They're casting themselves as us versus them political parties who want to bring about a certain types of changes, uh, but are opposed to the deep state, as we might call it in the United States right now, are suspicious of political institutions. And um, and those governments, of course, are not democratic governments in the way that we can the way we conceive liberal democratic governments. Uh, so even where there are democratic governments, you have to ask themselves, what kind of governments are they? Are they in the reform minded mold that I was talking about? Or are they more a variant, this kind of populist democracy that, you know, Perón had initiated in Argentina in 1946, and which has been emulated throughout much of Latin America during this time. And by the way, you have populist governments on the right and the left in Latin America. You know, Chavez, you know, and Maduro in Venezuela are examples of left-wing populist governments. So it's those governments might be more or less, uh, you know, politically to one side or the other, but they're similar in the way that they manipulate democratic institutions for their own purposes and in ultimately undermine democracy. I guess it just shows that you need to know your history if you're going to understand what's happening at the moment. Yeah, it is really true. That's why I find, you know, I'm a history nerd, but that's why I find it so fascinating. Well, there's plenty more in the book that we couldn't cover. We'd be here all day, but it's a fascinating read, I have to say. So thank you for coming on the podcast and taking the time to talk about it. I very much appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Max. 
You've been listening to the Latin American History Podcast, written and recorded by Max Sargent. For more information, visit the website www.maxargent.com slash the history of Latin America. And that's spelt M-A-X-S-E-R-J-E-A-N-T. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to get in contact at History of Latin America Podcast at gmail.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching for the Latin American History Podcast. The Twitter handle is at History Latin AM. And if you've liked the show, you can help out by leaving a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you visit the website, you'll see that each episode is accompanied by relevant photos. Most of these are my own, taken during my time in Latin America. All these photos and more are available to purchase as prints at my Etsy shop. You can find this at www.etsy.com slash photo. That's spelt www.etsy.com slash m-a-x-s-e-r-j-e-a-n-t photo. Thanks for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.